Good to see y'all. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We just started our study on 1 Peter last week. Made it into the first clause of the second verse. So it's going to be a slow journey, I think, but that's okay. There's a lot going on. I'm just going to read the first sentence, which is Peter 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Remember, we looked, uh, talked about, you look at your map, modern-day Turkey, those regions all are the northern half of modern-day Turkey. And that's not where Paul, in his journeys, was permitted to go. He tried a couple times in Acts chapter 16, and the Holy Spirit did not permit him. And he had to go across the Aegean Sea to start preaching in Philippi and Macedonia and down to Corinth. Um, So those are areas where he wasn't permitted. But as you can see, um, the gospel made it there. And so now Peter is writing to those believers who are already there. And he identifies them as elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So last week we looked at that first clause there in chapter 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We examined you know, all the times that the word, or a lot of the times the word elect appears in the New Testament. I think we counted 23 different times. Um, and how uh, the foreknowledge is not just referring to God merely knowing something about you. God knows everything, right? So it's not just merely knowledge, but this foreknowledge involves a knowing and regarding with favor. And so when Jesus would say in Matthew about, depart from me, I never knew you, he's not saying that he didn't have idea of who you were, it's that he didn't regard you with favor. And that, um, going back to the choice of the Father, of whom he would, those are the ones he gave to his son, and those are the ones that the angel appeared to Joseph. He said, you know, she shall bring forth a son. This is Matthew one twenty one, And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He has a people. There's a term for that is the elect. Sometimes it's called the chosen. Sometimes it's the all that the Father hath given me. We see that in John 6.36, right? And this is the Father's will, that all that he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Not a single one. All right, so I won't rehash that sermon. If y'all want to listen to more about elect and foreknowledge, go listen to last week. And I'm going to move chronologically here. You've got the election that occurred when? Before the foundation of the world. Right? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So that's what happened first. And then you've got the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, that, that occurs in our lives here and now. So I'm going to go chronologically, and we're going to look at the blood of Jesus next. All right, so we'll come back to the sanctification of the Spirit. Unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that word sprinkling is very interesting, okay? Um, God knows what he's doing when he wrote his scripture, okay? There's a reason we don't sprinkle in baptisms, because there's no reference to the word sprinkle in connection with baptism. The word baptism actually means to overwhelm, to submerge, to fully plunge under. That's the pattern that we do. That's what pattern we're given. That's what we do. But sprinkling, which is aspersion, um, which is a... Great word that means sprinkle. Um, it appears frequently in the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament, um, with the ceremonial law given to the Jews, was given pictures that pointed to Jesus. Right? We have finite little brains. Right? 
There's only so much that we can understand. And so God is given through these very distinct different pictures in the Old Testament ceremonial law to help us understand what all Christ is going to accomplish. Because if we just told us straight out, we, we couldn't get it. But it's also clues for how it was going to um, play out. So I want to look at four distinct pictures in the Old Testament today. Now, this is, this is a large topic, and I may run out of time. And so if I do, we'll pick it up. Um, but I, I, I think looking at them all together is, is worthwhile. And so the four ones that this idea of sprinkling comes into play, sprinkling of blood specifically, comes into play at the Day of Atonement, at the cleansing of the unclean who interacted with the dead, the Passover lamb, and at the creation of a new covenant. All right? Big topics, and I'm going to go use uh, Hebrews as our kind of our launching point. So go back two books to Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 13 and 14. So again, the idea we're trying to look at is look at these pictures in the Old Testament to see how they pointed to what Christ would do in connection with the sprinkling of blood. So, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So that was the pattern given over there in the Old Testament. They had the blood of bulls and goats, and you had ashes of this heifer sprinkling unclean, sprinkling on the unclean person, sanctifying, making holy, to the purifying of the flesh, whereas Christ purged your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That was, Old Testament is a type, it's a shadow, it didn't really accomplish anything other than setting up for what the real thing would do. Boys, you'll ever try to give a shadow high five? Right? You're standing on the ground, you're standing, you're trying to give each other a high five. Does it accomplish anything? No. No, but what if you actually, your hands smack, right? There's, there's an impact. There's something that happens, right? This is the difference between a shadow high five in the Old Testament where it's just pointing to the real and Jesus came and he actually accomplished it, okay? So when we say types and shadows, that's what kind of what we mean, all right? So, the, now just, we've got to have context, right? What is Hebrews chapter 9 talking about? Well, it's talking about that Old Testament ceremonial worship. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, it kind of lays out the framework for the tabernacle. You, know, you have a tabernacle, it's divided into two rooms. The first room is where the priest had to go into every day. You had a candle in there, candlestick in there, you had the showbread, um, and uh, then behind that you had a veil that separated the two, and you can read this all in verses 1 through 5. And behind that in the most holy spot is where you had the ark, and in that you had the Ten Commandments, and you had uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and you had the manna um, pot that's in there. And on top of the ark was a mercy seat where you had two cherubims with their wings outstretched looking at each other. Um, and so the priest couldn't go in there every day. He could only go in once a year. And so read that in verse um, 6. Now when these things were ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, that first room, accomplishing the service of God. All the things that they were told to do, light the candles at night, put them out, put out fresh bread, all the things... But in the second, the high priest went alone, one man, once every year, and not without blood, for which he offered for himself, because he was a sinner as well, and for the heirs of the people. Why did he do that? Why did God set it up that way? The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was not revealed. The way into the most holy of holies wasn't made plain yet. 
How is it going to be made plain? By Christ. He was the way. I'm the way, the truth, the life. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him perfect that did the service as pertaining to the conscience. So like we talked about that shadow high five, it couldn't accomplish it. It couldn't do the work. It, but it set up the figure pointing to what the real would be. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. Reformation didn't happen with Luther. Reformation happened when Jesus came. He straightened it out. He thoroughly brought in the new church age. But Christ, being a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, that is to say, not of this building. He didn't go into that Old Testament shadow figure. He went to the real, the most holy of holies. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now just pause and listen to that grammar. He obtained eternal redemption. He didn't hope to get a chance. He didn't provide an opportunity. He obtained it. He's fully got it. It's secure. All right? And that's what brings us into verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Alright. So all that's a long intro for saying, let's look at the first example. It says, the blood of bulls and goats. Well, that's in a reference back to verse 7 there. It says, but into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. This is a reference to the Day of Atonement. All right, so if you go back to Leviticus, where Moses is receiving the law from God. They're at Mount Sinai. They've come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. And they're now camped at this mountain, and God is delivering the law to Moses. In Leviticus chapter 16, you know, the tabernacle... Um, has been built by this point. Moses' two sons, he had four, have already disobeyed God and offered strange incense, and so they've already died, just for your context. It says, After that, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat. So here's your saying. You can't go in at any point. At this point in the Old Testament, the way was not open. He could come in once a year, but not at all times. Then shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. All right, so this is for, for him individually. As a sinner, as a priest, he had to have a bull for himself and then also a ram as a burnt offering. And it tells what he'd have to wear when he went in there. He'd take off his fancy garments. He'd put on some plain uh, linen ones. And for the congregation, he would take... Um, Two kids of a goat, so baby goats, and also a ram for a burnt offering. So first he'd have to offer, remember we're talking about sprinkling of um, bulls and of goats. First he'd have to sprinkle the bull. He shall offer for the bullock the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself. And this is referred to as the day of atonement. Well, what does atonement mean? Well, atonement means to, to cover, to purge, to put away, to appease. And this is how God told them for their sins that once a year the priest would have to make this atonement for them and for the people. So first he'd do it for himself, down in verse 7. Then he'd take the two goats and prevent, present them 
before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, and Aaron shall cast lots upon these two goats. One would be for the Lord, and the other would be called a scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. So you've got these two goats. One's going to die, and the other's going to have the sins of the people put upon him and put away, carried away. Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Aaron shall bring the bullock for the sin offering, which is for himself, make an atonement for himself and his house, kill the bullock for the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer, all right, so he's done that, he's going to take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, and he die not. All right, so just setting it up, he's got his bull, he's got his ram, he's got his two goats, and he's got the other ram that's going to be a burnt offering. He's got to take his censer, and he's got to fill up that most holy spot. So even as he's in there working, it's obscured. All right? The way is not open at this point. All right? And then he's going to take, in verse 14, he'll take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat, eastward. Before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. All right? So he's got a total of five animals and he's going to sacrifice the bull first for himself, and he's going to sprinkle that seven times, that, that aspersion, that, that flicking of it. And that word, or that number, seven, uh, appears a great deal in Scripture. And I think if you look at the pattern of it, um, the best uh, understanding we have from that, without getting too specific or too far afield, is that it's a number of completeness, okay? To fully complete it. And you can see it, it's found frequently throughout Revelation. Um, but so he sprinkles for himself seven times, and then he's going to kill the goat for the people. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to take the blood, and he's going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. Verse 16, He shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and his household and for all the congregation. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it, and shall take the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. So not only is he cleansing, um, is he sprinkling it within, inside the holy place on the mercy seat, he's also doing it outside on the altar where they do all their regular sacrifices. Okay. So how does this point to Christ? That's, that's really what we want, want to understand. Y'all remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 20, it alludes to Christ being made sin for us. Like when He was on the cross and God put our sins upon Him, like He became sin for us, He who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and 20. Let me just read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as, though God, as through God we beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Verse 21. 
For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So you have these two goats. Now if you look at the New Testament, when there's a division of the Lord's sheep from the goats, the goats are accounted as the wicked, right? There's no no time where a goat is ever viewed in a positive manner, right? But here you've got two goats. One that is being killed, and his blood is being sprinkled for a cleansing, for an atonement. And you've got another goat that's having all these sins be laid upon them and carried far away. So Jesus is is our ultimate shepherd. But here in this sense, it's like he became a goat on our behalf. And it took on all of our wickedness all of our filth, all of our vileness. And in one hand, he, he died. And the, the picture here is it's so complex that you can't sum it up in just one picture. So here you've got one goat that's representing Christ and, and his death and his blood that was going to be for atoning and covering those sins. And then you have, have to have another goat to show what happens to those sins. Well, they're put away! And it's, it's carried away by a fit man. Right? Let's see where that is. Verse 21. Lay his hand upon the head of the live goat. Confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sin. Put them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. They're carried away, right? Um, Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west is how far our sins have been put away from me. I don't want to misquote that. I want to give you the exact language. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And I'm not thinking like east and west like on a globe where you could eventually get to the other side. I'm thinking like east and west out into the universe that there is no way for them to find us again. That's how far he's put them away. That's the image that we're getting of this live goat that's being carried out. But it's got to be a fit man, right? Not just someone who's sorry and weak and can't walk real far and they're still right there. He's carried far away. And you know who the fit man is? It's Jesus as well. Right? It's a picture for him, right? Remember, uh, Jesus was talking about um, one who was possessed by a demon. Right? How can you cast out one? If a strong man keeps the house, you have to have one who's stronger to come in and defeat him. Well, Jesus is the stronger man. He's the fit man. So all of this picture here, you got three in one pointing to Christ. Right? His death, his blood that's atoning for your sins, taking the, the scapegoat who the, the sins are being put upon his head, and to be carried far away, and then also the fit man who's doing the carrying. All that for Jesus. And and in the process, you have this allusion to the sprinkling of blood. Seven times. Seven times. Alright? Verse 23 says, Why? Aaron shall come to the tabernacle of the congregation. No, that's not what I want. Verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's Leviticus 16.30. That was the purpose for that ceremony, to point to a cleansing and a putting away of sins. And while it was just a type and a shadow and a figure of the real, that's what Christ really accomplished. That's the sprinkling of His blood, putting it away on your behalf. Go back to Hebrews, and we'll look at that explicitly, of how that, that one couldn't accomplish it. Hebrews 10, too far, 1 through 4. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, 
and not the very image of the things, right? The difference between the shadow in your hand and your actual hands. That's how different it was. Can never, with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect, right? They had to observe this every year. If it had worked, they could have stopped, right? Verse 2 says, For them would they not have ceased to be offered. They could have stopped. Because the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again, made of sin every year. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Jump on down to verse 10 or 11. It says, um, And every priest standing daily ministering and offering sometimes the same sacrifice, oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins, for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth <laughs> expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering. There's not going to be another sacrifice of the Lamb of God. There doesn't need to be. That's why we don't continue to observe that Old Testament ceremony because it was just pointing to the real. He was the real. He did it once and he accomplished what he set out to do. Okay? So, as you're looking at 9 and 13 and 14, by the blood of bulls and goats, that's what was being referenced there. That was what was being referenced that day of atonement. And the sprinkling of Jesus' blood is the actual atonement, the actual purging, the actual putting away. But that's not the only picture that we get, um, just using that expression of sprinkling blood. You also have the idea here, this reference to a heifer. Heifer sprinkling the unclean. We'll go back to Numbers chapter 19. All right, numbers again. You're still um, there at Mount Sinai. Numbers 19. All right, and the Lord's going to give an ordinance for how they are going to cleanse somebody who had been made unclean because they had handled a dead body. Um, you can see this in just jumping in in 17 and 19. And for an unclean person, thou shalt take the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall be put into a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon all the persons who were there and upon him that touched a bone or one slain or one dead or grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe him's water and shall be clean at evening. All right, so that's that's kind of the, the ceremony for what you do with the water, but, but how do you get there? All right, well, before you got there, you had to find a red heifer, a red cow, okay? Had to be one that had no spot or blemish, had never been worked in the field, it couldn't be under a yoke, and I'm paraphrasing over in verses 2 and 3. They're going to bring it to Eleazar the priest, who's the son of the high priest, um, and he's going to take him forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eleazar the priest shall take his blood with his finger and sprinkle her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. Right? So later when it's in the water, you're going to sprinkle the unclean person directly with water um, with the ashes mixed in there. Here it's her blood. Right? So this is a cow, um, perfect, that's not got any blemishes, it's never been worked. And take it to the priest. You're going to take him without the camp and you're going to slay it and sprinkle the blood before the tabernacle. On the Day of Atonement, you've already sprinkled the mercy seat, and you've mercy, uh, you sprinkled the altar, 
Now the tabernacle, the tent itself, is sprinkled again seven times. After you do that, they're going to burn the heifer, um, her skin, her flesh, her dung, everything will be burnt. And the priest, while it's burning, the priest is going to take some articles and put them in the fire. Cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet, and cast it in the midst of the burning heifer. All right, then the priest is going to wash his clothes, and somebody's going to gather up the ashes and lay them aside and keep them until they, they need them to create these waters of purification. All right, and so look at those items that are mixed in there. The priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. All right, the, temp, the uh, temple hadn't been built yet. Later, it would be built out of cedar wood. All right? um, Jesus, when he came, his body was the temple, and he was going to be hung on a wooden cross. And so you've got this imagery that's pointing, pointing to Christ. Hyssop, hyssop is a reed um, when Jesus would receive um, vinegar. You know, they put it on a sponge on the end of a reed. On one of the epistles it says it's a it's hyssop. And then also when he was smitten, when he was being mocked, he was smitten by reeds. And then also scarlet. You know, when he was being mocked, the um, soldiers would drape him in a scarlet robe and also pointing to his blood. And so you've got all these different little pieces of, of picture imagery pointing to Christ. The animal that had to die, that heifer that had to die, and being burned. And then later, they're going to take these ashes... For anybody that's touched a dead body, um, you're going to be unclean. And to purify yourself, you'd have to have this water sprinkled on you. Now, to the process for sprinkling that, um, you're going to take the ashes, and you're going to take running water, you know, so a moving stream or something, put it in a vessel, and then someone else, a clean person, is again going to take hyssop, and dip the reed in there, and they're going to sprinkle the water on you. Sprinkle it upon the tent and everything that had been unclean. You're going to do that on the third day... And on the seventh day. Now, I don't know explicitly why it's on the third day and the seventh day, but we know some interesting things that happened after a third day, right? That was after Christ arose, right? And there's a clean person who's doing the sprinkling. Well, that's probably Christ too. And why on the seventh day? Well, again, the seventh day, that's a completeness, right? Fully completing purging. Now, when we're born into this world and we're conceived, we're born dead. Right? Dead in trespasses and sins. We are unclean by every way you can get it. You know, um, it's Psalm 51, 5 about David talking about and sinned if my mother conceived me. Right? Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. Right? We were dead. We are, we are unclean. And yet here you have this picture of Christ, that clean person, sprinkling this water of purification, putting away the filth and vileness of promise. And he's also the sacrifice that had to be burned fully and to, be, to make that possible. Right? The sprinkling being put upon us. And so that penalty, you know there's a penalty if you didn't follow through. If you handled a dead body and you didn't go through this process, you were going to be cast out, rejected out of Israel. Right? And so if Christ hasn't done this for us, that's where we're at. We're cast out. And then the penalty... Or is that verse 13? Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean, his uncleanness is yet upon him. That was, that was the penalty. That was the idea of being cut off. Again, down in verse 20, it says, But the man that shall that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation. 
because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, the water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. In my Bible reading last week, I was reading as David was going to uh, visit Nabal. Right? He had protected his flocks out in the field, and he sent um, some men to him to say, you know, we did you a good service. It's now the time of shearing. It's basically a big party. You've got all this food and stuff ready. You know, whatever you think is appropriate, you send over to him. And Nabal sent nothing. And Abigail, you know, the, the faithful wife, heard about it, and she goes to um, save, basically, his family because David got his uh, anger up, and he was coming to wipe him out. And so Abigail's going, and she brings some food and stuff, and basically tell him, don't avenge yourself. You know, the Lord will take care of it. But she has this expression in verse 29. This is 1 Samuel chapter 25 and 29. It says, Yet a man is risen to pursue thee, for to Saul, and to seek thy soul, thy soul. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thy enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Okay? That's your two end results. Right? For those that Christ purchased, your life is bundled together with the Lord. Right? My Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And for those who didn't purchase, they are cast out. And you can see that reference in Matthew 22 and 13 when you've got the, uh, the wedding feast parable, right? And there's one who's come in and he didn't have the garment. He hadn't been, um, didn't have the right wedding garment. And what did the Lord say? Well, cast, cast him out. Right? Cast him out into outer darkness and he'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And here it uses the imagery of like a sling being cast forth. That's what eternal life is, is to be in God's presence and to know Him. And to not... That's damnation. That's, that's what makes hell so bad. Yes, the lake of fire is awful, but it's being eternally separated from our Heavenly Father. Right? And so here in this picture, Jesus, that heifer points to Him, and the, the sacrifice He had to make, His life had to point to the purification that came, and by that purifying, that deadness, that vileness that we're corrupted with, we're made clean, made holy. Right? Now, you ever thought about when he was stabbed with a spear? What, what, or was it a spear? Sword. Spear. Spear. There's a, there's a song in our hymn book that's got a sword. You know? <laughs> just scratch that out so you get a little picky. <laughs> stabbed with a spear, and out of his side came blood and water. Right? His blood cleanses, but even then, that, you've got the picture here for this water of separation, this cleansing. Right? The clean person sprinkling us. Okay? All right, so that's, that's two of the pictures. The third, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, refers to the sprinkling of the Passover lamb. Hebrews 11 and 24. And the context here is talking about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who is invisible. 28, Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. All right? Now, if you watch movies, uh, like Prince of Egypt or something, you'll see them 
dip in, in the blood and they'll kind of use it like a paintbrush. Right? That's kind of when I have the idea of the Passover, it's always kind of this paintbrush idea. Well, let's go back and look at see what the text says. Exodus chapter 12. Because here, you know, I, in my research, when I was thinking, looking up sprinkling and where all that occurs, Passover is not one that I naturally, that just hadn't just come to mind. Exodus chapter 12. All right, you've had all these plagues. You're up to the final one. The Lord's going to send the destroying angel through and kill the firstborns of every family unless the blood was painted over the door. So Exodus 21, I said painted, well, let's see. 12, 21, and 23. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out, take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop. Again, same read. Used in the cleansing, used in the vinegar. Well, listen, it says, Dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike. Listen, strike the lentil. It doesn't say paint, it says strike. That's the same word they use for smite. Strike the lintel and upon the two side posts, and the Lord shall pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer. Now, the context in Hebrew says it's going to be sprinkling. Now, if you just paint, you're going to have kind of smears. But if you smite it, what happens? Right? You ever flick a paintbrush and whack it against something? It's kind of like a Jackson Pollock painting where you got splatters everywhere. Right? There's some violence in that. Right? There was some violence in the Lord's blood being taken. I mean, he again is that lamb... That perfect lamb who didn't resist, like a lamb to the slaughter. He was mute. Right? He gave up his life. He was perfect. His blood was sprinkled, or smut, smitten, upon both the top of the door frame and the two side posts. And the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer or permit the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. Okay? That points to that final judgment day. That blood that covers you and covers me is a testament to what Christ has already done. This price has already been paid. The destroyer can't come here because they're already free and clear. They've already been atoned. They've already been purified and made clean. The sacrifice has been made. He is going to pass over it. Your life is bound up with the Lord, and you won't be cast out. It's smitten against the door. You've got these sprinkles. The destroyer will not be permitted to harm you. There's no chance that Jesus won't get everyone that He paid for. Right, the sprinkling of the blood. All right. The Passover lamb. Got one more I want to look at. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. We've got the sprinkled atonement. We've got the sprinkling of the, the waters of separation. We've got the sprinkling of the Passover lamb. Hebrews 12:24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the new promise, the new testament. To the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Alright? Go back to chapter 9. I'm going to talk about this blood of sprinkling a little bit. 
Neither by the blood of goats and calves, by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. This is Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Having obtained for us eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and, and goats, that's your reference to the Day of Atonement, and the ashes of heifer, sprinkling and unclean, reference to the waters of separation, sanctifieth the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, He is the mediator. Mediator is a go-between. One who is able to go between God and man. The mediator of a New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called, again, talking about the elect, the chosen, those that are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So under this new covenant, this new media of a new covenant with a sprinkling of blood, there is a promise of an eternal inheritance. And that's to be with God, to be with Him in glory. For where a testament is, there must also be by necessity the death of a testator. We don't use those words very frequently. I learned testator when I went to law school. A testator is one who writes a will, right? And that will doesn't become enforceable until that person dies. You can change your will at any point. You write your will now... You keep living, you change it, you have the ability to do that as long as you're alive. It only becomes enforceable upon your death because you're not there to change it anymore. Well, that's the idea here is that there was a promise made, a contract, a covenant that God made to his people and it became enforceable upon Jesus' death. He made it and upon his death it was no longer able to be changed. For the testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Right? Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Right? So he said, this is the pattern. The Old Testament, there was a pattern that there would be a testament given and it would be dedicated with blood. And so what was that pattern? Well, that's when Moses was receiving the law. Verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept, all the laws, to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkle both the book and all the people. So again, you've got this overlap of the imagery, the scarlet wool, you've got the hyssop, you've got the water and the blood, and you're sprinkling both the law, that testament, that promise, and the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle, the tent, and all the vessels of the ministry. Um, now we can look at this specifically back in Exodus chapter 24. And that's kind of the summary version. We'll go back to Exodus 24. And I know this is a lot to take in. I probably could do one sermon on each of these four pictures, but I felt like it was best to try and get the high level uh, so you could see the full scope of how God at these various points in the Old Testament was pointing to His Son and what a complex thing that He was doing and all these different pictures that we need to try and piece it together like a jigsaw puzzle to understand the magnitude of what Christ is accomplishing. Exodus 24. Um, now, your context here in 24, this is, a, this is earlier, right? He's received the law from God, but he's not yet received the Ten Commandments. The tabernacle has not yet been built. So they stayed at Sinai a long time, like a year. And so they have not um, had all those things happen yet. Um, he hasn't received the Ten Commandments yet, but he's gotten the law. So God tells Moses, you know, you and Aaron and his two sons and the 70 elders, y'all come on up and worship. 
And Moses alone will come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice all the words that the Lord has said we will do. All right? So he's received the law. He audibly relays it. People hear it. They say, yep, we'll do that. And then Moses writes it all down. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. All the words of the Lord rose up early in the morning. He built an altar under a hill um, and 12 pillars according to 12 tribes. And he sent young men to go offer these sacrifices. And after he'd done that, he took half the blood from these sacrifices, put it in basins, and with half of the blood he sprinkled the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. Now they'd heard it once, just from audibly reciting it. Now he's written it down, and he's going to read it to them again. He read it in the audience of the people, and they said, All the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And we know from Hebrews, he also sprinkled it on the book, and he sprinkled it on the tabernacle. All right? And then Moses would go up um, with the elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And they had this wonderful vision. There was his... There was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stones, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, but they saw God and did eat and drink. And then he'd invite just Moses up individually and say, Come up unto me, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and the commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. So that's when he's going to go up and he's going to receive the Ten Commandments. Okay? So he's got this covenant, this, this promise, right? And he's got the blood of these animals and it's being sprinkled not only on the promise but also on the people. It's a new, the same pattern takes place with the new covenant, the better covenant. That one had a lot of promises but there was a lot of conditions. If you do this, good things will happen. If you do this and you disobey, bad things will happen. Well, what, the, what was taught in that is that they wouldn't do the good. Inevitably, it was always the bad. And eventually the, the promises came to fruition. And so the new covenant is much better for you and me because it's all dependent on God and His faithfulness and the obedience of His Son. And there's nothing that you and I can do to undo that work. Now, if we disobey, will He chasten us here? Yeah, you better believe it. Um, but that's as a loving Father chasing us uh, as His children, not bringing down the wrath and judgment for our disobedience. Because that wrath has already been paid out upon that lamb. Okay? So in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about this new covenant. And we had that the, the first covenant that was dedicated with blood. Verse 22 of 9. Hebrews 9, 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, why is that? That's the way God set it up. Is that foreign to us? We don't sacrifice animals. We're really far removed from that type of thing. Yeah, it is for it. But this is what Scripture says. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. That was the pattern. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. And that remission means freedom. No pardon. And that was the pattern he was giving to. And then he's saying, this is why Christ had to come and shed his blood. That way you could have freedom from your sins. Be pardoned from your sins. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven should be purified with these. Well, what's the patterns? That's referring to all the Old Testament ceremonial law. So that was necessary, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Not the goats, not the bulls. None of that is good enough. That just points to what's the real. The better things is Christ himself. 
For Christ is not made is not entered into the holy places made by hands. He didn't go into the tabernacle. He didn't go into the temple, which was still you know in existence when he came, but into heaven itself, the real holy of holies. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not just the cloud that appear on the mercy seat, just this little representation of Him, but before God Himself. Nor yet should He often offer Himself often as the holy priest entereth in the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it was appointed unto men once to die, and then after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's the new covenant. This new promise, this better promise that he made it was secured, it was a testament, it was a will, and it was enforceable by His blood. So in the Old Testament, you had this blood sprinkled on the promise and on the people. Here you've got the better promise, secured by the blood of something better, of God Himself, on you and on me and on His promise. Go back to chapter 8 of Hebrews. Verses 8 through 12 talks about this new covenant. And this, this is quoting Jeremiah 31 and starting in 31. It says, For finding fault with them, finding fault with the first covenant. It wasn't perfect. Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Like that first covenant wasn't good enough. It was dependent upon them, and they didn't do it. They could not hold their end of the bargain. And that's part of the purpose of the first, was to teach that man can't. We're not good enough. There's no one good enough. All right? Our best efforts is described as being just minstrel cloths, filthy rags. That's our best, much less our worst. Not according to the covenant. Okay, verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will, the Lord will, Put my laws into their mind and write them into their hearts and I will to be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord! For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Look at something interesting. Write all those I wills. I wills. I wills. Who's the acting party? He is. And in this he saith, the new covenant will he make. The first is made old. Now that which decayeth and waxed old is ready to vanish away. So he's putting away that ceremonial law and he's pointing to this is that new covenant. The new covenant that he's put into your mind and in your heart. Right? So when you're, you're born again, whether you've heard Scripture or not, the Lord has put in His law into your heart, into your mind. Your desires change. You are created a new creature. Those carnal things that you used to enjoy so much now taste like bitter ashes. You may still indulge in them, but it's not the same. And there's consequence for that. I will be merciful. This is the new covenant. This is that new promise that He's made. And what's the end result? Is I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Not because they're worthy, but for His own grace. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This is back in First Peter chapter one and verse two. 
elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the Father who chose you before the world began, gave you to His Son, called you His own, and then His Son came into this world, humbled Himself, became fully man, fully God. How that is, I, I can't explain it. That's what Scripture teaches, and so I believe it. And was willing to be so obedient, you know, unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood, that He was willing to lay down His life. That was voluntary. They couldn't take it. They couldn't force it. But he laid down his own life and caused that his blood would be shed. And here it's the sprinkling. The sprinkling that he was the atonement for you. His blood was atoning. It paid the price to put away your sin. It was cleansing. Like that purifying water. Though you were defiled by death, he's made you made you pure. Brought you out of that death, given you that new mind, that new heart. And one day he'll give you a glorified body. And put you into his family. You know, you know the church, that word, it means called out assembly. You've been called out of this world and into the family of God. That's why we call each other brother and sister, in case y'all ever wondered, is because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that title reminds us every time we speak to each other that this is one who, for whom Christ died. And therefore, we have a very intimate and close connection, and therefore I love them. Right? That's a sign that we're a disciple of Jesus Christ is by loving those that He redeemed. So His blood that was sprinkled atoned you. His blood cleansed you. It was that blood that causes the, the destroyer to pass over for you. Now, that's the day of judgment. You won't have to fear the end times. Right? There's nothing to fear there. We know who won. Right? When you get to that throne, the blood of Christ is the complete answer. Have I done many awful things in this life? Yes. And His grace is sufficient for even that. Now, do I want to continue and wallow in that now? No. No. I want to glorify Him. I want to praise Him. Will I fall short every day? Yes. Should I be content in falling short? No. <laughs> Right, this is our dual nature. We have the old man who's carnal and likes sinning. And we have, when we're born again, that new man. That inner man, the Holy Spirit that's regenerated us, who's indwelling within us. That desires no sin. God will never leave you, lead you to sin. Right? If you're deciding, trying to decide on you know, making your decision tree, should I do this or this? If the end result is that you're sinning, you're getting farther from God, it's not God leading you. Right? It's something else. Most like our own wicked lusts. What a Savior we have. All these pictures, they still only give just a little glimpse of the magnitude of of what was offered and what was put away. We can't understand the scope of God's wrath. We can't. We can't understand the scope of God's love. But because of Christ, all we'll have to know is His love. Because He's already borne that wrath. And so, when Peter here uses that word, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, he's pointing to all those Old Testament pictures to try to help us understand just what Christ has done for you. May we never... I 
count the blood of Christ as something cheap or something to ignore or forget. It should be real. It should be in our mind, in our conscience, not on the back burner. The price that was paid for you... All right, let's, let's put you as a POW in war, right? There's a lot of folks captured in Vietnam, right? And they were POWs for a long time. It was awful. Say somebody purchased, paid the price to pull you out of that camp. Would you ever forget that? Your life was so awful and there was no hope. And the only thing that was going to end result was going to be death. No, that's where you and I were. But on an infinitely worse scale. And someone has paid the price for us. But it wasn't just money. It was an exchange that's specifically for you. And you and you said, I'll go. I'll pay that price. I will suffer the wrath of God. And my blood is going to be sprinkled on my people. And they will never have to pay it. And there's no charge that can be laid against them. It's God that justifies. Now, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He gets all the honor. And so now, as redeemed, as purchased, what do we do with the time that He's given us? Do we serve ourselves? Or do we serve Him? That's our question that we have to struggle with every day. When Jesus said to take up your cross, you know what he added there again? Take up your cross daily. Daily. That means you and I will be tempted not to (laughs) every day. Your old man's going to say, no, it's too hard, it's not worth it. This is the price that's been paid. You've been bought. You belong to him. We are his bond slave. When the epistles start with a servant of Jesus Christ, that's what Louis translated, a bond slave. I have been purchased by this blood. I belong to him. And so, let us bring Him glory. Bring Him honor. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, I should know what His commandments are, and I should try to serve Him in that. Will that earn me God's love? Nope. He's already loved you. If you love Him, it's because He loved you first. You can't earn His love. He gave that to you freely. But in my life, I should desire that my life, my life would be a positive reflection on my father, the one who brought me into his family, and not to bring reproach and shame upon him. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. I thank y'all for your time and attention.